In 1 John 2, we have Christ the propitiation for our sins, the knowledge of God and our brotherly love, and the various duties of the saints, their security in Christ, and their duty to abide in him. Hear now the reading of God's inspired word, profitable for us, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, 
and that no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous... Ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word, 1 John chapter 2. First in verses 1 and 2 we have Christ the propitiation, no encouragement to sin. Notice here, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Here's the purpose for my writing. That you might grow in conformity to God who is light... Not saying, well, I have forgiveness of sins and therefore I may sin. Let us continue in sin that grace may abound, the apostle Paul says. But he says, even though my purpose in writing to you is that you not sin, if any man should sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, this is not due to the dominion of sin, but the infirmity of the saint. Now, usually the word advocate is used for the spirit of God. He is our parakletos. He is our comforter, our advocate. Here, notice, Christ pleads our cause. He represents us. That's the idea of an advocate, an attorney, someone who in the courtroom stands on behalf of the accused and makes their case. Who is our lawyer? Who is our attorney? Who is our advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous, or literally, Jesus Christ righteous. That's what it says. John Diodati, whose perfect righteousness makes him exceeding acceptable to God to be our intercessor towards him. And being imputed to us, that is his righteousness, being imputed to us, doth also gain us his grace. Christ is righteous. He represents us. When he argues our case, he argues his own case. I am Jesus Christ, righteous. You must accept the sinner and pardon his sins. That's the idea. Christ as righteous is the grounds of our acceptance in God's court. Let us hold fast to and boast in this title of Christ. Jesus Christ, righteous. And notice, he is the propitiation. That righteous Jesus Christ, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, the propitiation is the thing offered up to appease the wrath of God, his justice. Who soaked all that anger up? Christ, our high priest. Not just a priest, 
but the sacrifice itself. He made the sacrifice and he was the sacrifice. Now he pleads as our advocate and mediator. And notice, John doesn't say, well, look, he is the propitiation for your sins, you unwashed masses, you laos, you laity. No, what does he say? He is the propitiation for our sins, mine, John the Apostle, yours, you saints of God I'm writing to. Augustine comments, he chose rather to put himself in the number of sinners that he might have Christ for his advocate than to put himself in Christ's stead as advocate and to be found among the proud that shall be condemned. If we have advocacy for ourselves, if we plead our own cause, Augustine says, you'll be accounted as a sinner. You'll have to make your own case. That's why John puts himself in the position of sinner so that Christ can represent him. And notice, Christ is not only the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, you may say, well, that means that everyone's sins have been soaked up through the sacrifice of Christ. If we say the whole world means every single person, Judas Iscariot and Pharaoh, they're included in that. All the ancient apostates, Saul himself, those people, even Bar-Jesus, the magician who opposed the working of God, even that man who received baptism, Simon the magician, and who was in the, the gall of bitterness, well, Jesus died for him too. Is that what this means? Because if it is correct that he died for everyone's sins and that the wrath of God has been soaked up on their behalf, who, pray tell, ends up in eternal perdition? Who has to pay for their own sins? Nobody will. Because propitiation means the wrath has been soaked up. Justice has been satisfied. The Geneva Bible says, for men of all sorts, of all ages, and all places, so that this benefit being not the, to the Jews only, of whom he speaks as appears in verse 7, but also to other nations. The Dutch annotations concerning the whole world, that is, of all people in the entire world out of all nations. In other words, we say this, Christ died for all men without distinction, not for all men without exception. If we said he died for all men without exception, everyone goes to hell, we are universalists. If we say he died with, for all without distinction, it means it doesn't matter what nation you are from, what your political status, what your sex is, what your age is, it does not matter. Christ is the only savior for anyone under heaven in this world. Verses 3 through 11, we have the true knowledge and love of God and its effects in brotherly love. Hereby, verse 3, we know that we know him, or we have come to know and we continue to know him, the perfect tense. A knowing of our knowledge, a certainty of our faith. How do we come by this? If we keep his commandments, he says if his commandments emphatically we should keep. The tree is known by its fruits. 
not by the vain doctrines and commandments of men, not the traditions of the elders, not our pious and well-intended feelings or fancies, but the plain delivered commandments of God in the scriptures. That's how you know. Do we keep his commandments, especially those two great commandments on which all the precepts of scripture hang? And he's going to talk about one in particular, loving your brother. But both great commandments. Now, he that saith, I know him. Remember, James said, a man may say he has faith. You can say you know God. But if he says that and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Faith without works is dead. And notice here again, John often uses the Hebrewism, says it positively, he's a liar. And then he says it negatively, the truth is not in him. It's a double statement for emphasis. There's no room for wiggling here, John says. Either you keep what he has written in his word or you don't. You can say you love God. You can say you know God. You can say you have faith, but you're not going to demonstrate it unless you're sanctified. Here's how you can test, he says. Here's how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Justification then is always accompanied by what? Sanctification, growing in grace. Let us be a holy people. Let us not be liars in whom there is no truth, but sincerely growing up to perfection. Now this is, again, not saying he who keeps God's commandments at all times in every circumstance in every way as a covenant of works. And so now we know that we know him because we're sinlessly perfect. You remember what he said in chapter one? If you say you have no sin, what are you? Sinlessly perfect? You're a liar. There's no truth in you. But this means to sincerely conform yourself more and more, growing up to perfection over time. Let us be such a people, growing in grace and knowledge. Notice also it's not just the commandments, but also his word. This is the word logos, his doctrine, his truth, his promises. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Promises and precepts together, doctrine and duty, gospel and law, we must receive both. And we are to walk even as Christ walked. How did he walk? How did Christ live? Did he tell lies? Did he flatter? Did he seek his own interests? No, he spoke the truth and he sought the good of his people. He even sacrificed himself, gave of himself as an offering to God on whose behalf his own no, for his brethren, we are to walk even as he walked. He sought the good of others, and so let us walk. Now, he refers to an old and a new commandment. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. How long is that? Well, it's a very long time, isn't it? In fact, at the beginning of this book, that which was from the beginning, who's that? Well, that's the Logos at the beginning of creation. What is this commandment that goes all the way back to the beginning? What is the commandment that Adam had and that all of his posterity has had until this was written and even to this day? We call this the law of nature. We call it the Ten Commandments written upon the heart. 
We call it the two great commandments, love for God and love for your neighbor. This is the old commandment, a gray engraved upon the human heart by virtue of being human. But also, there is a new commandment that he writes unto us, which thing is true in him and in you. Now, notice, he's going to talk about the same commandment. The claims of light and darkness boil down to this. Do you keep this law of love? Do you love your brother? That's what he's going to be talking about. And how is that a new commandment if it's an old commandment? The old commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, love your brother. Here, the new commandment is the same thing. How is it different? How is it new? Well, two things. Our Lord Jesus Christ exemplified the command to love your brother in a way that no one else could or did. That's the first thing. It is true in him, and he works it in you to love his people. It's true in him, it's true in you. The light now shines, and so you can see. What does it mean to love your brother? Christ is the example par excellence, as we say. He was light without darkness. He came and dwelt among us. We saw him with our eyes. Our hands handled him. Our ears heard him. That's how it's a new commandment. Christ has exemplified it, that true light shone among them. Then verses 12 through 19, we have various ages of Christians not loving the world and a warning against seducers. He writes to little children, their sins are forgiven. Are these little children physical children or spiritual children? Or I would argue both. Little children in age or little children in faith. What happens to their sins? Are they forgiven because they're little children? Is there justification by youth or infancy in the Bible? No. How are their sins forgiven? For his name's sake, because of what Christ your king has done as the prophet and priest of his people in laying down his life. Fathers, he writes unto them, he says, because ye have known him. It's the perfect tense. Ye have come to know him. And you continue in that knowledge of him. Young men, he writes to them, because ye have overcome the wicked one. Now this is a play on words. The word for a young man is neaniskoi, or the young men. And the word for overcome is nenikesake. Nenikesake. This means to overcome, like nike is to be a victorious conqueror. So the neaniskoi, they have nenikoi, right? They've overcome. Young men have overcome. They are warriors. They are strong and victorious in the might of God's word, as verse 14 tells us. Love not the world, he then says, neither the things that are in the world, or literally, stop loving the world. It assumes we're doing it, and we need to stop it. This is a temptation for Christians. Don't have a fondness for the world, a longing for the things of the world, an affection for them. As James says, friendship with the world is what? Enmity against God, James 4.4. 4. Now notice, when he talks about the world, he doesn't say, well, you know, grass, trees, stars, the moon, food, drink, your body. 
those are the things that are in the world. No, that's not what he's talking about. The lust of the eyes, the desire to be rich, to have our toys. We see a beautiful thing and we want it. We want the gifts and graces we see in others. The lust of the flesh, the abuse of the creature, using the creatures inordinately, a corrupt longing for it, leading to gluttony or drunkenness or whoredom or sloth, seeking your own pleasure at the expense of doing your duty. That's the lust of the flesh. The pride of life, the bios is the word there for life. It means the good life, the uh, characteristics of a refined life. And I have this great life and I boast of my greatness. Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he looked on his kingdom, the lust of his eyes. Then what did he have? The pride of life. Is not this great Babylon that I have built, he said? You see the accomplishments of these hands that I did? Isn't this wonderful? Aren't I exalted the pride of life? Augustine comments, God doth not forbid thee to love these things, howbeit not to set thine affection upon them for blessedness, but to approve and praise them to this end that thou mayest love thy creator. He goes on to compare a bridegroom who gives a ring to his bride and she takes the gift from her, her bridegroom and she says, oh, now I love this. I don't love him anymore. I love this thing. You see, God gives us all these things and he says, use them as a reminder of the giver of the gift to love me more, in other words, as you enjoy my creatures. He that doeth the will of God, he says, abideth forever. How long does worldly lust last? How long is the satisfaction of sin? It's fleeting, isn't it? It's very short. And where does it come from? But from this world system, from the devil himself, from the lusts of our flesh, those things are going to go away. So if you do the will of God, what's the source of that will? God himself. Is he able to be corrupted or to pass away? Well, of course not. So if you're doing his will, what will happen to you? You will abide forever, he says. God, the immutable, will cause us to abide forever. He tells them it is the last time in verse 18, the eschaton, literally, the final hour or day. And we know that it's the case, he says, because there's lots of little antichrists running around. Now there is the antichrist, he says, but there are many antichrists also. Many of those who oppose and exalt themselves, but they're not the final one. Here's how we know. And he says they went out from us, but they were not of us. Now this is not an exit of location. This is an exit of faith, of doctrine, of commandments. Christ is the prophet. Christ is the priest. Christ is the king. What do the Antichrist say? Well, no, he's not. You see, there are other prophets to teach us wisdom and knowledge, other sources of truth. You, no, there are other priests than just Christ. There's this other mediator that we go through. There are other kings to rule and give laws to the body of Christ. It's not just the husband who rules the house here. You know, there are lots of different sources of law and right. 
This is what anti-Christian doctrine is consisting of. Jesus is the Christ, or there are other Christs. And a Christ is the anointed of God, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Verses 20 through 29, he refers to the security of true Christians and their duty to abide. They are secured by God, and they have a duty to abide. Ye have an unction, he says, from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Now, this is important to understand. What is it that Christians know? And they have this unction from God. Do they become omniscient? Do they partake in the divine nature? Because on the surface, that's what it sounds like. Ye know all things. Omni means all things. Niscient means you know. Omniscience means you know all things. What exactly does he mean? Well, it is this. Who is it that inspired the word of God? Well, it's the spirit, right? God breathed. Theonoustos, that's the scriptures. God breathed. Who is it that anoints the saint? Who is it that is poured out upon them as oil was poured upon the head of Aaron the priest? That's what an unction is. It's where a priest receives a chrisma, an anointing with oil. Who is it that anoints Christians? Well, obviously, it is the spirit of the living God, the same spirit of God that inspired the scriptures. Christians have an anointing that comes from the same source that gave us the word of God. Augustine refers to the word of God as like the two breasts of the mother church, the divine scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. That's where we feed as newborn babes, Peter said, longing for the sincere milk of the word. This is the unction. This is how we know all things. The same spirit that gave us those two testaments of the divine scriptures also gives us this anointing. And the Antichrist, what does he do? Does he accept those two testaments as the only rule of faith, as the only source of feed? No, he doesn't. That's why they go out from us, because they're not of us. Who is the liar but he that denieth that Jesus is Christ? He's the anointed one, verse 22. Now, Satan is very subtle. Do you think that when the Antichrists were going around the church in John's day that they said, listen, guys, Jesus is not the Christ. There's this other one. Were there some Jews that said that? Yes. They had a guy named Bar Chokhba right before the destruction of the temple. And he was their Messiah, the son of the stars, they called him. He must be the Messiah. Was he? No. That's not what John is talking about. He's talking about men in the church they're not going to come out and say in so many words. You think Satan is that obvious? Just come out and deny the basics of the faith. No, how do they start? Little by little. There are other prophets, priests, and kings. There are other advocates and mediators. There's a different head and authority structure than just this one. That's denying that Jesus is the Christ. Not a verbal denial here, but a substantial denial. What is the substance of the Christ, the Christos, the anointed of God, prophet, priest, and king? That is the substance. 
Whosoever denieth the Son, the same denieth the Father. Salvation is both doctrinal as well as historical in its accomplishment by Christ, as well as personal in its application by the Spirit, as well as eternal in the Father's decree. There are certain doctrines that we must believe to be saved. Then he goes on. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son. Here again, note, the scriptures tie together the doctrine that is heard, that which ye have heard, and the personal application, ye shall continue in the Son and in the Father. There's no non-doctrinal Christianity in the Bible. There is always a set of beliefs that we must embrace, and there is a set of duties that we must practice. This is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life, he says in verse 25. And this is the thing. Why do we not need any man to teach us, as verse 21, or excuse me, verse 27 says? Is it because John writing this is not teaching them things? Did they not need John? Well, in a sense, they didn't because they had the anointing. But did they need him to write it? Yes. Did Christ appoint teachers in the church? Yes. Are we mystics and enthusiasts and we don't really need anyone to teach us? No. False teachers cannot offer us some other source of knowledge. That's what he means. There's no other teaching that you need. There's no other unction than that from the Holy One who inspired the Word of God where everything you need to know is written down. All things necessary for life and godliness are given to you through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie and even as it hath taught you. God who breathed out the Word also anointing the apostles and prophets, anoints the people of God to receive that very truth. Thus we are thoroughly outfitted unto how many good works? Every good work. And we are made wise unto salvation by faith in Jesus Christ through those same anointed apostles and prophets. And then notice, not just the doctrinal, but also the practical. Everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him, though they do it imperfectly, yet sincerely. And more so over time, growing up to perfection, they are born of God. And thus far, the exposition of 1 John chapter 2.